what does it take to start a clean energy investment firm from the ground up? And how can companies ensure they're building inclusive, diverse teams as they grow? In today's Greenlight episode, I will speak with Raul Advani, CEO and managing partner of SER Capital Partners, who has proven to be a leader on both fronts. We will also speak about Raul's founding of the membership-focused nonprofit Streetwise Partners, as well as the future of clean energy investments in light of COVID. Thanks for tuning into the Greenlight. Now let's dive in. So I'm Catherine McLean, founder and CEO of Dylan Green, and today I have with me Raul Advani, CEO at SCR Capital. So tell us why you decided to start SCR Capital. Sure. So first, SCR Capital, we're a private equity firm, and so SCR stands for Sustainable Environmental Renewable. And those are the three subsectors that we exclusively focus on. And decided to start it because really saw, or I should say felt, that it was the right place to be at the right time. I think a few years ago, I might have felt a little bit early, whether I'm right or wrong, that that's another thing. But I think now, first, there was no firm that was independent, that was dedicated to investing in these sectors with the private lens that and strategy that we're carrying forth. And so thought that there would be a market demand for that. Number two, really felt like now's the right time because sustainable solutions solutions are now economic and increasingly in demand. And so where it once went from a fad, I think it's now whether businesses are sustainable or not, there's this term greenwashing that goes out there, right? To start an investment firm in this arena, really on a more dedicated pure play basis, really to me felt like there was the opportunity to earn better returns than traditional kind of private investment returns because of the sustainable aspect of it. Yeah. To me, all of those things kind of built in together. I had always gravitated to early stage businesses in my own career and had been kind of, I don't know that I would have been able to articulate that this is something that I exactly wanted to do, but very excited to have the opportunity to do it. And what sort of lessons have you learned? What advice can you provide when you're starting your own business from the ground up? I'd say the first thing is about the people. It's almost cliche to say, particularly when I'm talking with a recruiter, (laughs) but it really is because that's the tone for how you can really leverage yourself, how you can really just uh, benefit from other people around you. And so to me, the first lesson is is just surround yourself with the absolute best possible people that Mm -hmm. you can. The second thing is know what you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. It sounds like a simple piece of advice, but to me, if I didn't have the private equity investing experience, didn't have it with the team that I've been alongside, I don't know whether I'll be successful or not, but I at least have the confidence that we have a good shot, that we're a cohesive Mm -hmm. unit, and that we're all aligned together Mm -hmm. and transparent with one another. And that comes with history. It comes with the people themselves and the ultimate culture that we set out to have as part of our organization. And I know that you and I have talked many times about how important diversity is to you and gender diverse companies, 21% more likely to financially outperform their less inclusive counterparts, while organizations with higher ethnic diversity are 33% more likely to outshine less diverse companies, according to McKinsey. Why do you think that's the case? Do you think maybe bringing different voices to the table or preventing groupthink? You know, it's it's interesting. I want to start with a quote that I think I shared with you previously from Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was asked how many 
uh, justices on the Supreme Court should be women. And her answer is all of them, right? And that's the exact right mindset. Don't want to have quotas or just even think, well, how many women do I need to have or can I have? I think that's entirely the wrong mindset. And so our partner, Sarah Graziano, is the chair of our investment committee and is easily one of the smartest individuals that I've interacted with, one of the best investors that I've known and has some of the deepest experience in this space. And just being open to that, being able to have a culture that we can build around to keep part of who we are. Yeah, and I, I noticed that even though you have a small team, 43% of your team is a diverse or people from diverse backgrounds. How have you seen this play out? Like what tangible benefits have you seen perhaps like from companies you work with? Yeah, 43% of us, by the way, are racially diverse, right? And then we also don't have enough gender diversity. We're not trying to check a diversity box. But I do think that if you start with the broadest, best candidates, uh, you're going to end up with a diverse pool. So that's going to lead you to getting a different culture than you otherwise would have had, a much better culture, one that's going to really drive a lot of respect and diversity of thought. And ideally, if done well with transparency, with integrity, with authenticity, even vulnerability, I think these are all key elements of building a strong organization and building a worthwhile experience for myself, for my teammates, for all of us, for our executives, for our investors. To us, diversity, inclusion, it all just fits into that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you mentioned about vulnerability really does uh, set the stage for how you operate. How have you seen an increase in diversity within the energy sector and particularly within finance? Um, So there's been an increase in diversity and that increase in diversity has probably come with the increase in renewables. And I, I don't know if that's coincidental, but I would say that it's probably not entirely coincidental because it's been the biggest growth area. It's been the biggest opportunity set for employment and for diversity to even incur. I would say that while it's grown, it's like the rest of corporate America. I think that there's opportunities to do better across the board. There's a lot of reason to have a lot of hope because I think another part that's a dynamic in the sectors that have been involved in it is that we've had an aging workforce. And really, there's been a dialogue, at least going back as early as the late 90s, where this is a topic of conversation when you're doing diligence on businesses, when you're talking Mm -hmm. about the sector, when you're talking about key trends. And so when you have now younger generations coming into leadership positions, diversity is just kind of increasing by generation. At least it feels like that. I don't have the data to back that up, but I I think that's one of those things where we're moving in the right direction. And I think where we sit as SER Capital, we have the chance to really kind of establish this de novo, right? I think if you're an existing organization, if you don't have a diverse culture, but you have uh, really high integrity people who really want to deliver on that, but might feel a little bit stuck, right? Of how do mm-hmm. I do that if I don't have a, a budget for growth? Nobody deserves to be rotated out as an example to create room for that's exactly what they are. They're just tough decisions, but they're a lot easier to put in place when you're building companies. And so maybe with a newer sector and this ethos, I may not be alone. Yeah, I totally agree. It's definitely easier, not easier. It's never easy, but easier, easier to do it when you're building it from the ground up rather than like retroactively go back and try and fix it and instill that in the culture. It's not just about hiring, making people feel included when they're in the organization. To be able to feel vulnerable, if you have folks that are the smartest person in the room, let's say, right, and you have a wallflower that may not want to extend themselves because they're junior, maybe they just don't want to get into it, maybe they're unsure, but it might be the best point that changes the course of the fate of an investment, of the fate of a business. And so 
if you kind of just unwind what all of that means, you have to have that transparency and that shared vulnerability. And uh, that's not a one-way street. Uh, you don't see that a lot. I think it's spoken about around organizational behavior. And maybe teams will kind of do that in kind of teamwork exercises. But I haven't seen that really be adopted more broadly across firms. Yeah. So I want to talk about Streetwise Partners, uh, a nonprofit mentoring program that you founded. Uh, what motivated you to do that? It was a lot of just feeling some of the inequity of the world on my shoulders. I was maybe naive, but it was 1997. I graduated Colgate University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had my first job at PwC. And on my first day, I was being taken to some of the most lavish lunches and dinners in the city with open tab accounts. And I didn't feel like I'd done anything to deserve that at that stage. And so I felt some sort of guilt. And it was just amplified when you know, I saw the poverty across New York City. And I had somebody homeless that would frequently warm themselves on a grate outside my apartment. And I had a cube mate who was very inspiring to me. And together we started talking about how we could give back and we created a 15-week mentoring organization. And that grew from one site in PricewaterhouseCoopers to multiple sites with backers like Credit Suisse and Barclays and Gallup and uh, Robert Smith. And so we're in Detroit, we're in New York City and Washington, D.C. And so I've stayed involved because of the people, uh, the people that we help, found that we're able to help the mentees, we're able to help transform individuals' lives. The thesis that we did it back in 97, I was 21. I don't know that I could have articulated it. It was we want to change one person's life that can change a family's life that can change a community's life, right? And that was really the the whole ethos and did it with the idea of helping one person and it all being worthwhile back then. And so we're now graduating north of 400 folks a year across three cities. And a lot of it I've had little to do with at this stage, but it's just a great organization. I know I joined in with them a couple of times when I was in New York, and it really is a great organization. Um, So I want to talk now about COVID. So there have been reports forecasting continued renewable energy growth despite COVID. That's certainly what I have seen. Do you believe that this will be the case? And how do you predict the clean energy industry will be impacted long term by the pandemic? I do think renewable energy will grow, will continue to grow. And I think we're going to have accelerated growth of clean energy through COVID. That's not saying that there's not going to be risks to having that kind of view around that trajectory. A lot of the renewable growth that we've seen in recent years has not been growth in electricity demand. So it's not the marginal new assets to fulfill the marginal new demand is renewable. It's renewable assets are coming in and on the, on the whole are displacing assets that are coming off right? So the question is going to be, is is that displacement going to maybe continue at the pace that it has? And what we're seeing is, is that even installing new renewables at capital costs, at the long-term contracted costs that they could offer customers, is lower than some of the inefficient assets that are already on the grid, right, still. And so betting against that continuing is betting against continued innovation in a sector that's just demonstrated it over the last 20 years, right? And with solar, it's maybe over the last 15 years. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's going to continue to be a big part of this. I think you're going to have added areas of growth around it, but I believe it. Whether it's profitable also and how you invest in it, what the business models look like, I think that that's a... uh, um, uh, that'll be a different answer because all of the efficiencies that are being driven, they include cost of capital efficiencies, right? And so mm-hmm. if you think about trying to earn a return uh, in some of these businesses, you have to have a pretty optimistic or aggressive vantage point around that one way or the other. Do you think any industries in 
our space or the clean energy space will go backwards as a result, like perhaps plastics? You nailed it. I think that that's the one. Single-use plastics now coming back in, right? We had New York City just instituting what's probably the most ill-timed plastic bag ban uh, right ahead of uh, the pandemic and the unwinding of kind of people bringing their own bags to grocery stores. And Mm -hmm. so that was always an industry that needed some involvement either with carrots or sticks to get it off the ground around plastic or some way of pricing the negative externalities, I guess. I think that they could be hurt. I'd say conversely, around recycling, I think that we're going to have an uptick around e-waste recycling, mm-hmm. right? So our, our devices that we might have a, a bunch of in a drawer somewhere, all of these have regulations in terms of how they're supposed to be returned, how they're supposed to be recycled, or at least how they're supposed to be disposed of, it, particularly as we're seeing kind of battery storage assets coming on, solar panels mm-hmm. that are eventually going to be needing recycling. We're seeing that as something that doesn't offset the negative impacts of plastics, but it's human safety. I think trumps, at least in the moment, trumps uh, the planetary safety. It feels like that's what the mindset is. You can kind of read tea leaves from everything that's going on. So the final question I'll ask is, where do you see the greatest growth taking place within the clean energy industry in the coming years? I know we touched on it a little bit in your previous statement. How does SCR look at that? So I think SCR, my team, and and I would say, number one, it's battery storage. It's the most potentially transformative asset that is uh, coming onto the grid. Uh, It's really enabled in a much better way because of the renewable growth that's preceded it over the last 10 to 20 years. And so it slots in very well in ways that other traditional assets don't necessarily. And so uh, uh, just the physical capabilities, the the fact that it's the, the cost declines that are coming down, we see that as the cost of clients that are continuing because we see companies investing in the supply chain because of electric vehicles, mm-hmm. right? And, and the grid actually just becomes a beneficiary of that electric vehicle supply mm-hmm. chain. So I think that's going to be a key part of it. I think also, as I was saying, a lot of our investment thesis is demand-driven. And so I think mm-hmm. what's a parallel to that in our sector is energy efficiency. Anything that technology that empowers reduction in energy waste, which we know there's a lot of, I think that uh, we're going to see a lot of opportunities around that. Those are really probably the key areas. And, and these are you know, areas of growth and backdrop, depending on the markets that we're talking about, 5 to 20% drops uh, in COVID. And I think these are all sectors that probably held up relatively well. Certainly renewable assets did. And I think that resilience is going to lead to just continued interest. There is more demand for resiliency here. You know, I think one of the things that we've also talked about around the demand side is on a broad level, we see it being uh, decarbonized, we see it being distributed, we see it being digitized, and all of that being increasingly electrified, right? And so internally, we, we use this term 3D&E, but it's a shorthanded way of saying that demand for whether it's electricity or industrial activity is changing, the asset opportunity around that is transforming and it's no longer an advantage to have a big legacy asset maybe that is of scale that needs a lot of lines and wires coming off of it or or distribution networks off of it and i think that's just going to continue through you know despite um some of the uh, horrible kind of aspects of COVID that all of us have been wrestling with in one way or the other yeah well thank you so much for your time and thoughts on this i really appreciate it Catherine, thank you i really appreciate it thanks for the opportunity Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Podcast. Are you looking for your next role in climate tech? 
Join the latest growing network of clean tech professionals and be the first to know about what industry-leading clean tech companies first post new job openings, from development to finance to marketing, by checking out our website, dylan-green.com slash latest hyphen jobs. Dylan Green is transforming business through talent. You can also find us on YouTube where we engage with today's top clean energy leaders.